Welcome to episode 128, Bringing It All Together, Integrated Care for People with Psychotic Disorders and Substance Use Disorders, featuring Dr. Delia Campan-Hendrick, Triple Board Certified Physician. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth E. Riaz, and today we're going to be talking about a very complex topic, which is the overlap between psychotic disorders and other comorbid disorders, particularly substance use disorders. I also want to thank Westbridge Treatment Center for their sponsorship of this episode. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization that provides treatment for men with co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders in New Hampshire. Today, we are joined by Dr. Delia Campan-Hendrick. She is an MD that uh, works as a medical director at Westbridge in New Hampshire. And I'm just grateful to have somebody with so much knowledge on this topic here to join us. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Hi, Beth. Thank you so much for having me here. Uh, it's really a pleasure to be on on uh, uh, the Clearly Clinical series of podcasts. So why don't you take a moment and tell us a bit about your background and then how you came to have this specialization in working with individuals that have psychotic disorders and comorbid substance use disorders? Yeah, sure. Um, Beth, I'm, I'm a dually boarded psychiatrist and internist. And honestly, I've never been able to make up my mind between which one I want more to practice, psychiatry or internal medicine. So ever since I finished the training, I have really tried hard to work in both. Um, and I soon enough found Westbridge, which uh, is a nonprofit organization focused on treating men with serious mental illness and addiction to the goal of comprehensive recovery. They're very evidence-based. Uh, they use integrated treatments, multidisciplinary teams, and um, this it turned out corresponded um, to what I really wanted to do. Um, use psychiatry skill, with, use addiction medicine skills, which I'm also boarded in, and uh, use the medicine view to uh, help um, the complex care uh, of people with these co-occurring disorders. Wonderful. So, like I said, I think for many people, when we talk about psychotic disorders, clinically, it can be really intimidating. Why don't we start by just kind of defining what is a psychotic disorder? How are they diagnosed? How do they generally present? In what population? Just kind of give me the psychotic disorders 101, if you will, as a refresher and reminder for our listeners. Sure, my pleasure. So, Psychosis is really not an illness in itself. Psychosis is a syndrome. It has a number of symptoms. Uh, the main symptoms include hallucinations and delusions, but also disorganized thinking uh, and sometimes abnormal motor behavior and negative symptoms, uh, such as a diminished ability to express emotion and uh, decrease um, pleasure and uh, decrease motivation. Um, but essentially, psychosis is a state of the brain that affects perceptions, the perceptual ability from all the senses, hearing, vision, touch, smell, as well as uh, thoughts. Altered perceptions and thoughts can be intense and compelling, such that, such that the individual may have difficulty distinguishing what is real and what is not. So... Uh, the main, the main um, symptom of schizophrenia is psychosis, but psychosis is not always due to schizophrenia. It can be due to a number of other disorders um, of a mental illness nature or of a medical nature, or it can uh, due to various uh, toxic syndromes. Um, so while schizophrenia spectrum disorders are chronic and severe diseases of the brain, manifested by psychosis and by a number of chronic neurological symptoms that in many cases start in childhood, um, it becomes severely symptomatic in adolescents or young adults and can have a chronic remitting and relapsing course over the individual's lifetime. 
the exact cause of schizophrenia is not known, but it is known that there are many genetic factors that increase the risk. And in addition, factors such as severe childhood trauma and losses and use of substances in adolescence can trigger a first episode of psychosis that, like other acute and severe illnesses, can produce extreme disruptions to young lives and even be life-threatening. Psychosis, again, can have other causes, though. Um, In addition to schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, severe depression, severe PTSD can be accompanied by psychosis. Medical illnesses such as Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, or as of recent, COVID-19 infection can be associated with emergence of psychosis. Different medications, as well as substances not used for medical purposes, can exert a toxic effect on the brain and produce psychosis. And we can talk more about the complex relationship between psychosis and schizophrenia and substances. Great. I mean, there's so much there in what you just said. One of the things that stood out to me was that idea of the emergence of psychotic symptoms in adolescents, particularly related to substance use. Can you speak a little bit more about that? I know that's something that I've seen quite a bit in my practice, and I'm sure for many of our listeners, that's also something that they see. Yeah. Um, It seems that both substance use disorders and schizophrenia share some common vulnerability. Uh, One of those, some of those vulnerabilities can be genetic. So maybe there are some genes that they're being shared. Um, Another one is brain circuits. There is an interaction, kind of the same brain circuits at some point may be involved or altered. But another one is uh, a special developmental time of vulnerability, and that is adolescence. With or without substances, schizophrenia seems to um, become seriously symptomatic at this time in adolescence or young adulthood. Substance, of course, substance use um, also appears in adolescence. It's a time when developmentally um, young people um, do take risks. And uh, depending on uh, their environment, depending on uh, the availability of drugs, depending on their own uh, genetic background and pressures, um, they um, they may be involved with substance use and in some people, those um, may become a substance use disorder. Um, in people, it seems that in, especially in people who have a genetic vulnerability or other risk factors, um, those uh, the substance use at this time magnifies the risk of emergence of schizophrenia. So let's say somebody has a genetic background, so they're vulnerable they might or might not develop a really true first episode psychosis with all its massive disruption to life. But if they use substances, and especially cannabis, it seems, the risk of developing that first episode psychosis is highly magnified, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. I've seen that quite a few times in my work. And one of my questions for you, other than cannabis, I mean, we know about Uh, cannabis-induced psychotic disorder, for example, or substance-induced psychosis. What are other substances that clinicians need to keep in mind that could contribute to the development of psychotic symptoms? Yeah, excellent questions. And let me just backtrack a little bit from that question um, in order to actually answer it more fully. Uh, But I want to talk exactly about this relation between substance-induced psychosis and schizophrenia, which is so complex. Um, it's usually thought that differentiating between the two is vital to understanding someone's prognosis, outlook for the future, because it has been thought that a substance-induced psychosis, as opposed to schizophrenia, will cease when the triggering factor, the substance use, stops. While this may be the case in many people, it appears that, for example, the cannabis-induced psychosis converts to schizophrenia and up to 50% of people within the first few years after that substance-induced psychosis diagnosis. Um, and researchers have looked at whether, well, what is this about? Was that just a misdiagnosis? But it seems that it's not a misdiagnosis. It's really more like a step in that direction. So if somebody develops a substance-induced psychosis, 
they are at heightened risk, much higher risk of developing schizophrenia actually in the next few years. So a chronic illness, whether or not they continue to use substances. Um, so um, other substances that induce psychosis, um, I mean, all substances can induce psychosis really, but we know we have quantified the risk in a number of other substances. So we know that amphetamines, can produce substance-induced psychosis in about 30%, hallucinogens in maybe about a quarter of people, 20% for opioids, and 5% in alcohol. And while the rate, for example, for alcohol use disorder and substance-induced psychosis seems low, um, there are a lot of people who use alcohol and have an alcohol use disorder. So in fact, a lot of people with substance-induced psychosis have alcohol-induced psychosis, if that makes sense. That does make sense. So, so again, so on one hand, lots of substances can produce substance-induced psychosis. That in itself can transform into schizophrenia in all the substances. And um, then there is another another aspect of that, which is if people develop schizophrenia, even if they've never used substances before, they actually have a high risk of developing a substance use disorder in the years after the diagnosis. And the rates are high with, of course, nicotine, uh, which is very high. The nicotine use disorder mm -hmm. is very high in people with schizophrenia, but also amphetamine, cannabis, alcohol. And this may be dependent just on what the profile of the substance use in the general population is. It's not clear that there is a preponderance of substance use, one substance use disorder versus another, maybe other than nicotine. Got it. Um, that statistic that you mentioned about the conversion, if you will, from a substance-induced psychosis diagnosis to the development of what I'll call full-blown schizophrenia in a certain number of years is staggering, 50%. The way that I've explained that to clients is to say, you know, basically, once you had a substance-induced psychotic episode, the, the switch may have been flipped and may not turn back off. As an MD, I'm curious, do you agree with that perspective or how would you modify that in talking with a client um, that has this? Because I've, I've, so one of my specializations is working with substance use disorders. So I've worked quite a bit as well with the comorbid psychotic disorders and it's often really scary for clients. And I certainly want to have the best language, I think, to describe for clients what they're going through and what to expect. Yes, I think that's very well put. And um, I use similar language. And also, I make sure that, um, you know, people are left always hope because, um, of course, the first episode psychosis, whether it's substance induced or schizophrenia, it can be extremely scary, actually quite traumatic. And um, uh, people can uh, grow uh, hopeless over the possibility of uh, developing this um, as a chronic illness yeah. and having the sense that that's not under their control. But I would say that to a certain extent, that's always under control, under their control, you know, because they can do things, people can do things, they can get treatments that will minimize that risk. Um, yes, the switch may have been flipped, but, um, you know, of course, not using substances and being healthy and supported in a number of ways, um, actually getting the right treatment and making sure that psychosis is treated, you know, it's not present anymore, because just the presence of psychosis creates additional vulnerability. So, um, there are many elements that can be addressed, both in the in the schizophrenia, the mental illness, the substance use disorder, as we'll talk about any other medical vulnerabilities that may be present. And um, even if people do have a chronic illness, there is hope for comprehensive recovery and for people really having a full life. But they have to be very careful. Tell me more about that dividing line between delusional disorder, for example, and schizophrenia. When we're assessing for that, regardless of substance use, what are really the factors that you keep in mind as a dividing line for that? And really, for any any symptomatology that we're seeing, where does it cross into, okay, we're looking at schizophrenia right now? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think there are a number of clinical indicators that may suggest one way or another. Um, this are not though, th this are not like really hardcore evidence-based, you know, there is a clinical sense that uh, something they've been described sometimes in the literature for, you know, for the last 200 years, uh, some of the symptoms as being associated with schizophrenia particularly. So we talked initially that psychosis um, has, you know, psych what psychosis means is hallucinations, delusions, but a number of other things, disorganized thinking, abnormal motor behavior, a number of so-called soft neurological thing, um, symptoms that may be present long before the hallucinations and delusions are obvious. Um, and so in the substance-induced psychosis, we, we more prominently see hallucinations and delusions. If we see any of these other ones, even negative uh, symptoms like mm -hmm. that, that kind of uh, amotivation, evolution, um, and if we see any of the soft neurological symptoms, then it's more likely that this is schizophrenia. Okay. But remember, the thing is that even if we diagnose schizophrenia, the course of schizophrenia is not the same for everybody. Um, so, I mean, it is indeed a chronic remitting illness, but people can have decades of recovery, you know, really strong recovery. So while making that diagnosis is important, it's more important that regardless, if it is psychosis, there has to be comprehensive and long-term treatment um, that, you know, with intensity that varies depending on how people are and what stage of uh, their condition they are. But uh, long-term attention and, um, again, recovery is uh, possible and we always have to do our best to uh, help people get on, on that path. Uh, course where the prognosis is better, right? And that's possible. My experience and my dive into the research about schizophrenia and psychotic disorders in general, that sometimes there are these, what I'll call shadow symptoms in childhood, where like the child will have a really rich um, internal fantasy life, for example, or they'll be really drawn toward, um, toward cult-like behavior or things like that. I, I've worked with a number of clients that when I have interviewed their parents, they've said, well, actually, there was this thing, you know, and, and we were all, there was, you know, a lot of drawing and fantasizing about XYZ. How do you as a clinician tease that out as an MD? How do you tease out some of that childhood stuff when you're seeing the person at 25, for example, and you're just going, oh, something's going on here. We're in a quote unquote psychotic break or in a psychotic episode. Let's look backwards. And then I'm curious, is there a relationship then for people that are that have what is appearing to be substance-induced psychosis, do they tend to have that same stuff from childhood that is generally normal, but is like a little bit unusual? A little bit unusual, yeah. You know, so when I talk with people who experience psychosis, right, who are now adolescents, late adult, in late adolescence or young adulthood, they sometimes give me that history, but not always. So sometimes it's very clear that they're... Um, inner experiences that maybe were not picked up, you know, by either parents or, or doctors. And they even were barely aware of, it's only now that they experience the full-blown psychosis that looking back, you know, are saying, hmm, you know, I was doing this, or, you know, it was my, my imaginary friend was really, really, the relationship was really, really intense, or, you know, I always was uh, could detect auras around people or you know there, there are a number of symptoms that seem you wonder whether they were um, preliminary um, you know that they, they were indicating that people are have a vulnerability to schizophrenia now I'm not aware of the evidence that um, all of those inner you know experiences become, schizophrenia or substance-induced psychosis. You know, some of them may not. That is my sense. You know, some of them may not. So if you just look at kids, right, some of them may have this kind of inner experiences, which are uh, maybe a little bit more intense, maybe a little different than the usual, um, but not all of them 
will have a substance-induced psychosis and not all of them will have schizophrenia, but some will. Do, do they represent a risk factor? Maybe, but I'm not aware really of the evidence behind that. And the reverse is true because I think I do see people um, with clearly, I mean, definitely with substance-induced psychosis and pretty clearly with schizophrenia in young adulthood. And I cannot elicit any of that. You know, I cannot elicit any of this experiences um, in childhood. So now let's talk about this involvement, this comorbidity between psychosis and substance use disorders. You talked about how individuals with with psychosis or with schizophrenia are commonly diagnosed with comorbid substance use. Can you talk a little bit more about how you even would treat that when you're looking at these two really significant clinical issues? Like basically, which it's like clinical whack-a-mole, like which one do you go after first? How do you manage that? Exactly. Yeah. Well, the key is, uh, obviously, this is a very difficult situation. And I think when people use substances and have psychosis, it's almost impossible to say what came first. Sometimes it's very clear, sometimes, but that's rare. Most times, something was always there present before. You know, the more you go into the history, the more you find out there was something else, some other factor that preceded it. So it's really, really hard to tell. Um, but I think the key uh, of the intervention is always to treat both. You have to treat both at the same time, concomitantly and not sequentially. And for that's really hard. Um, it's really hard because our system of care is fragmented, and maybe we'll have a chance to talk more about the systems of care. But um, obviously, traditionally, mental health is treated in a different system of care than than the addiction, and of course, those both of those are separate from medical care. Um, so. It's, it's difficult, but you do need um, some type of a multidisciplinary team that can address both at the same time because the psychosis, regardless of what it is, needs to be treated. Um, needs to be treated with antipsychotics, but also needs to be treated with uh, a lot of education about what it is and um, coping skills. You know, people have to learn coping skills. I mean, often the, the experience is so overwhelming um, and so compelling. Um, people uh, do not really know. Part of the illness, right, is that people do not really know that it's different from reality. The reality that they're experiencing is at least as strong, is not, if not stronger, than the surrounding reality that we are aware of. Um, so the psychosis needs to be treated, needs to be treated both, um, you know, pharmacologically and with a number of psychological interventions. Um, but the substance use needs to be treated at the same time. So ideally, um, people get treated, I would think, in a residential setting. And that's what the evidence shows too, that uh, residential settings are actually an evidence-based practice for uh, people with co-occurring disorders because, um, you know, they need that kind of intensity um, and they do need to, to be sober. Um, and, um, of course, substance use treatment goes beyond being sober in a structured setting. Um, after that, you know, they need, after the initial period of sobriety, which may require uh, medication-assisted treatment, um, they, um, you know, they, they need to, to see in where they are at in terms of using, how do they understand their own use and uh, how committed are they to continue to use versus, uh, you know, not use. That's, that's very hard, but the treatment needs to be um, in agreement with their stage of change and where they are in regard to their own use. Um, so there are a number of interventions, both for the substance use and for the psychosis, that need to happen concurrently. I think that point is really important, and I think that's one of the things that challenges outpatient clinicians because you can find, for example, residential treatment center that treats substance use disorder, um, or you could tr you could find maybe even a longer term residential treatment center that treats things like psychotic disorders and more um, acute disorders. But that overlap, I think, is 
is sometimes more difficult to find. And I think that's one of the benefits of having someone like you here to talk about that, because they are so critical to treat together. And I'm thinking of my own experience leading groups where if you're trying to do a substance treatment group and 11 of the 12 participants have one agreed upon reality, if you will, and one of the 12 has a totally different reality, (laughs) that's going to be a very different group dynamic that challenges a, a treatment center, a provider, and even the efficacy of the treatment. So I'm glad you bring up that point about treating them concurrently instead of sequentially. Um, when, so when I'm curious, if you happen to know, folks that end up in residential treatment centers for co-occurring disorders, do they tend to step down from psychiatric hospitalization or do they tend to step up from outpatient care? Yeah, that's a very good question. We see both, but most often, actually, it's a step down from uh, inpatient psychiatric care. Sometimes people just call up and say, you know, I'm, this is, I'm at my wit's end, or the family calls up and we've been in outpatient, but we've gone through the whole gamut of treatments. Uh, I think we need residential care. So sometimes that happens too. So when you think of comprehensive recovery for people with psychosis and substance use disorders, what elements come to mind for you? Great question. Um, So recovery is indeed, I mean, has to be comprehensive and it's a complex concept. Um, It's, you know, it's what we think as clinicians may for as recovery may be different than what our clients think about it, right? Well, what is recovery for them? And more often than not, um, our our patient's view of recovery has some kind of functional goals, you know? So we may think, oh, as a clinical team, we want to get this person to not use anything, not use any substance, and that's our goal uh, for treatment. But their goal may be to go back to school, you know, or repair some of their relationships or hang out with friends again, you know. So um, they're very different goals, right? But they're both actually very important. There are a group of researchers who a few years ago really looked um, at this uh, recovery concept and talked with patients in the program, talked with um, clinicians, talked with uh participants' families, and try to get to this concept, what is re- what's important for everybody? You know, well, what are we looking at here? So how can we um, even look at outcomes from any treatment if we don't have a well-defined concept of recovery? What are we looking at? Um, what success? So um, they came with, uh, you know, with about like, I think 14 dimensions of recovery that uh, people initially brought up, and then they kind of narrowed it down to about six or five that were really important. So I'm I'm gonna say what those were. Um, they they were um, housing, um, school, going to school, uh, competitive jobs, um, spending time with friends who were not using, repairing relationships and having good relationships with their families. Uh, Sometimes some people brought up spirituality, uh, physical exercise, uh, sleep habits, personal hygiene. Um, But overall, the one, the, the dimensions that in the end were the most significant were uh, feeling like one has independent control, can exert control over the mental health, over the mental illness symptoms. Two, um, having control over the addiction, over the substance use, you know. So that doesn't necessarily mean 100% sobriety, but it means having control over it, not being run by the addiction and not being run by the mental illness. Housing, competitive employment or going back to school, and uh, something along the social line. So either repairing relationship with family or hanging out with uh, good non-using friends and generally be content about life. So, so when we think about recovery, I think these are the dimensions we need to think about. Uh, it has to be comprehensive. And um, it's really those functional goals, you know, the job, the family, uh, you know, the social success that keep people's motivation and hope 
for working so hard to maintain the substance use disorder and mental illness under control. One thing you mentioned a little earlier was the overlap with other conditions, whether they're medical or mental health. Can you take a moment to speak to that? Because so I think it was really helpful what you just outlined in basically when they talked to people who have comorbid substance use and psychotic disorders, they're saying, you know, these are the primary things that I'm, I'm concerned about. I think that's a, a very helpful list for treatment planning. What are some of the other medical conditions or other mental health conditions that are common that we also need to then be integrating into that treatment planning concept? So the medical aspect, I think, is very, very important and unfortunately is often neglected. Um, it has been noted that people with schizophrenia and other serious mental illnesses have actually early mortality. Statistically, we've known now for a decade or two that people who die earlier, they die 10 to 15 years earlier than the general population. Um, it's true that some people die quite young, unfortunately, because of the heightened risk of suicide, especially early on in uh, after the onset of, of schizophrenia. Um, but researchers were surprised um, 15 years ago to find out when looking at the data that the main cause of death for this early mortality was heart disease. So just like in the general population, People with schizophrenia have heart and lung disease, obesity, and diabetes. Um, but these diseases seem to appear earlier and be more severe than in the general population. They um, contribute to mortality, they have complications, they, they're resistant to treatment, um, and they contribute to decreased quality of life, to say the very least. Um, there are many reasons, you know, why that is. I mean, wh why do they appear earlier, you know? Why are they more severe? than in the general population. Um, it's, uh, it's a complex answer to that question. Um, there, it, you know, there might be some genetic vulnerability. I mean, some studies suggested that people with schizophrenia also have uh, some genetic vulnerability to diabetes because they've seen that even young people without obesity um, who develop schizophrenia maybe shortly before or shortly after, also were diagnosed as diabetes type 2, which is a little unusual for a young population. And it didn't have, they didn't have to be treated for that to happen because the thought was, well, is the treatment for schizophrenia produces diabetes? And while that's true and that can happen, it does seem that even before they get treated, they are at heightened risk for diabetes. So, so there may be some kind of genetic vulnerability. Um, but the main problems are really systemic here. Um, like, like we said before, um, mental health is treated in a completely different system than substance use. And medical care is yet a third system that is completely different. Uh, historically, they're different. The training and education of the providers is completely different and has um, pretty minimal cross-training. Um, and as you know, insurance is different. You know, the, the, the paying system is different, which really contributes a lot to fragmented care and, and to some, some difficulty of the systems communicating. Um, other than the logistical problems, you know, these systems are geographically separate. There's no uniform way for them to communicate. Uh, a lot of systems now have, of course, electronic medical records. But uh, each unit really almost has their own medical record that doesn't communicate with any other medical record. So that is the case for most for most systems, right? Um, so so what's one person to do, right? There's one person who has schizophrenia, let's say, has cannabis use disorder or alcohol use disorder, and um, has obesity and diabetes and is a smoker. So uh, by now, you know, also has like early COPD. Um, the, the burden of bridging the system really relies on the patient, uh, on the patient who's not well. So even for a healthy person, if you ever had the experience of navigating the medical system, even um, when you feel well and maybe you do it for another just to help out, it's really problematic. But when you're ill, it's, it's even more problematic, right? Uh, and many times people just, they don't go to the doctor. 
Um, they, a lot of people with schizophrenia and substance use disorders don't have a primary care physician, um, which is really the entry gate into the system of medical care. Um, and they don't have because it's too complicated. They don't know how. Maybe they're homeless. Um, or maybe they've experienced already enough stigma whenever they presented for care in crisis that they don't want anything to do with the medical system anymore. Um, so, you know, but, but yet there is another aspect that um, is sad, which is that even when people have a doctor, even when they are in the system, they seem to be getting less care. So um, there are some studies that looked at people who were established with primary care physicians and they were seeing their doctors regularly. But when they look at their rates and how their treatment were evolving, you know, they were not getting uh, the same amount of monitoring for medical conditions as the general population. Their treatment for diabetes wasn't adequate. There was a study that looked for um, a certain type of treatment for heart disease, for stents. There was a time when stents were considered um, the best treatment for a, a certain type of heart attack. It's not anymore, but at the time it was. And um, in this study, researchers looked at uh, people with schizophrenia admitted with that type of heart attack, admitted to the hospital, they're, they're much less likely to get the stent. You know, why is that? Well, maybe maybe the providers, you know, are not sure that, um, you know, their patient is going to follow up or that they can they can do whatever it takes to uh, continue care after such an intervention. Um, or maybe, you know, uh, in, in the case of other treatments for medical illness, um, maybe providers are a little uncomfortable with the psychiatric polypharmacy that you often see um, and, you know, are uncomfortable to add yet another set of medications. And again, they're not sure whether, you know, their client is going to follow through or is going to come back for visits or there, there's that sense, you know, of um, maybe mutual mistrust a little bit. Um, and um, or, or sometimes, you know, under the pressure of time, you're always faced with a complex differential diagnosis when somebody has so much comorbidity and it's kind of difficult to focus on every aspect of, um, you know, of the conditions that, that you're seeing. But in any case, um, the fact is that um, even after, you know, this data came out a long time ago, right, like 15 years ago, that we know there's early mortality, there's a lot of medical problems, um, you know, we're not treating them well. Uh, we're, not, we're not doing enough monitoring, we're not doing, uh, we're not applying the standard of care more often than not. I'm sure that there are a lot of contributing factors for that. Um, but it sounds like what it amounts to regardless is a group of people that is simply not getting the care that they need on many, many dimensions. So if you had your magic wand <laughs> and you could create ideal integrated care for that person that you named, somebody who has been smoking, who has a substance use disorder, who has schizophrenia, who has diabetes or obesity, what would that look like? Who are the players that are going to show up on that team? So it has to be a multidisciplinary team. You can't have, I mean, you have people who are trained, you have to have people who are trained in multiple aspects of those conditions, but they have to be part of the same team and communicate to one another and coordinate all the time. So, um, you know, that and that kind of team has also has to work in an assertive manner. So, you know, if the client doesn't present for care, they have to go after them. You know, they have to go to their home. Um, there ha so there has to be the model of an assertive community treatment, which in fact is an evidence-based practice. So it's been shown to help in people with serious mental illness. It would probably help even more um, in people with co-occurring disorders, provided that you do have somebody who knows about addiction on the team. And also you do have somebody who um, helps a little bit with the medical care. Now, it doesn't have to be a person who provides the medical care, but it has to be a person who, um, first of all, there has to be a goal of care. You know, the team needs to know that, okay, we're going to help you with 
your medical care. We, this is on our list. Um, how are we going to do that? Well, we're going to help you navigate the medical system, take appointments, go to them, find another doctor, whatever needs to happen. Um, we're going to advocate for you because that's that's a, that's big. People need advocacy. Um, many times they go, right? The providers are busy. They don't have the words maybe right then to explain exactly what's going on. And they end up in those 15-minute visits that unfortunate providers have. Um, they end up, you know, without without a, a comprehensive workup or, uh, you know, diagnosis. So, but they need advocacy. Somebody can come and, ad, and exert that advocacy for them. Um, somebody, like somebody on the team, can um, provide that kind of cross-communication, you know, like you can go to medical doctor and say, look, this is the medication list from the psychiatrist, then can take instructions back, you know, to the team and the psychiatrist so that we all collaborate, we all know what each other is doing and can have a common plan. And really the common denominator in, in the end is this kind of multidisciplinary team that can uh, coordinate, discuss, even, you know, a team that is um, trained just a little bit or maybe has the supervision of a nurse can be treated, it can be, um, can exert self-management support, you know, so, okay, the team is not going to do the finger sticks for diabetes, but they can certainly help the patient, remind them that they need to do finger sticks if they know that that's what the instructions are. Um, they can ask them if they have enough of what they need to do that, if they ran out of anything, um, help them set alerts to do it, ask them what the numbers are, and um, invite them to keep track of them and bring them up to, to the provider. They can help them manage the stress of all that because uh, managing a chronic illness is very stressful. Um, and in that context, um, I, I did want to bring up this um, instructions for training behavioral health providers in doing that um, can be found in a book that my esteemed colleague Mary Brunette and I um, wrote just for that purpose with very, um, you know, concise explanation of chronic medical illnesses, but also with instructions for behavioral health providers or how they can support self-management skills for people who have them. Um, and I think that's very important. In addition to, um, you know, attending to people's functional goals. So, you know, so we talked about the mental illness, the substance use, um, the medical illness, but then we need an employment specialist on the team. We need somebody who um, can help people get a competitive job. That's possible for everybody, and supported employment programs really know how to do that. Um, they link with local employers, you know, and they support the clients to getting a variety of jobs according to really what they want to do. Um, and, you know, they can be creative and inventive and, and really supportive, and they have great results. And the last piece of it that I think is, I left for last, but it's hugely important, is family. So families, um, you know, both in mental illness care and in addiction care, um, they are often excluded from care. We're dealing now, you know, we have adults, not, not children. We have adults who need care. And, um, you know, with uh, the confidentiality agreements and whatnot, you know, even if um, the patient wants the family involved, the family is often excluded. Um, they're also stigmatized and their suffering is never part of treatment. You know, the, there's intense family suffering when, when a loved one has a substance use disorder or, or a severe mental illness. Um, and they, they're often their ears of intense suffering and maybe guilt or, you know, um, uh, really uh, very problematic and, and affected, disrupted relationships and strain. And families can hugely benefit from support. They can benefit from support uh, to, for themselves, you know, to, to get um, healthy and support themselves. 
um, they can get benefits for, you know, to understand what's going on with their loved ones. So education about the, uh, the, the various conditions that uh, their loved one experiences. And in turn, they can um, exert huge advocacy on their behalf because who knows them better? than their families. So in many cases, you know, granted, I mean, that's not always appropriate, but in many cases, involving family is a huge benefit to the unit that you're treating, which is the patient and their invisible family, you know, they have to become visible and um, they will be of great help. And in fact, you know, I mentioned earlier, but, you know, repairing those relationships which are often strained when people have had mental illness and uh, substance use disorder for years um, but repairing those relationships are just huge motivators for people to continue treatment and keep being well the part in what you just said that really stands out to me that you didn't even cl- like really say it but so much the implication here is the shift into viewing this more through a case management based model that for the licensed marriage and family therapists or even the licensed professional counselors who are listening to this, we're used, so as an MFT myself, we're used to operating in this, you know, don't work harder than the client kind of paradigm. Um, And what you're saying is, you know, when working with somebody who has chronic psychosis and comorbid medical and substance use disorders, it, it requires a shift in the coordination and the, um, I guess the challenge on the provider to view themselves not as this kind of adjunct service, but as almost the um, connector of all of these services. So for residential treatment, if we're looking at the ideal for residential care, we would have all of the things that you just listed. And then I'm imagining somebody being stable enough to step down into, say, what insurance would call partial hospitalization, so day treatment, then into intensive outpatient where they're coming on an outpatient level, living at home, wherever that might be, a few hours per day, a few times per week. When you step down further into straight outpatient, when the person is really doing well, but they still need all of these providers involved, who is that coordinator? Is that the therapist? Are there case managers around to do that? Are there community organizations? What have you seen to support all of these different um, domains coming together to continue that multidisciplinary care? So, see, Beth, you asked me ideally. So, uh, <laughs> ideally, yes, <laughs> ideally. So, um, I I am well familiar, you know, with the difficulties, and I know um, about this step down in care that I think is really dictated by the model of payment, not by evidence. You know, so um, yeah, people um, step down to BPHP and to IOP. Um, but that's because assertive community treatment, uh, very few insurances pay for that, right? Except uh, Medicare and Medicaid. So um, when you go to the level of the mental health center, um, you are going to find a care management team. And depending on how resourceful, you know, um, that particular mental health center is in which state and, you know, what um, what funding they have and whatnot, they might have an assertive community team that is multidisciplinary. Sometimes they may even have a nurse. Um, you know, the nurse is usually, unfortunately, not integrated very much with uh, the team. Uh, there's a lot more that can be done there. But every now and then, there are private uh, care management and assertive community treatment uh, teams that do just that. You know, they really take all the elements of of evidence-based practices that have been demonstrated to help and really put them together in one team. And then uh, they, then the individual therapist and even the psychiatrist, you know, they become part of the team and it is the team that really coordinates all these aspects, you know, without taking anything from that individual work. But as you can see, that, that individual work, I mean, it's that 30 minutes or an hour, right, that you spend with your patient and maybe very little in between appointments that you can. Um, but having a whole team for you that can follow on your instructions and um, and communicate with your patient in between 
it's hugely important and then communicate with other providers and bring information back to you and so forth and really bring back information from how your patient is doing in the community right that would be ideal that's an, an ideal model and unfortunately i know that this is rare there are a number of efforts you know in trying to just recognize that this is this is the evidence you know this is what helps the most and um to try to you know formulate like models of payment that you know will make uh this kind of treatment become mainstream you know and in the public health domain but it's it's not there quite yet i think what i'm hearing too then is the importance of those outpatient providers being aware of that shift in the hat that they're wearing that basically what you're saying is the more complex a client's presentation or the patient's presentation the more complex and integrated the care needs to be and so that awareness that if we are working with a client/patient who has multiple comorbidities, the awareness that it's not just that session, that's not that 50 minute hour that we're working with them, but it's inherently that part outside where we're coordinating with a psychiatrist, with an endocrinologist, with with case management, with whoever it might be to help get those supportive resources. Not to mention, you know, the case management element of like different paperwork, really disability, things like that. Um, but so I, I think it's, I think hearing that perspective is helpful because it's it's one of the things I, you know, I can only speak for myself here and also teaching at an accredited program for therapists at the university level. That piece, I think, is easy to miss because like, OK, we do our thing as therapists. We talk to psychiatrists sometimes. And I think it's easy for us to overlook all of these other pieces that ideally are involved. Dr. Delia, can you talk a little bit about why? Like, what is the research behind this integrated care? Why is this really what we need to be doing when we're working with these clients with psychosis and substance use disorders? You know, until about maybe 20 years ago or so, um, the thought was that the care probably needs to be sick. I mean, it wasn't even that the care for those uh, comorbidities used to, uh, needs to be sequential. It was, you know, it's one or the other. And people really most often fell through. I mean, it's not only that, let's say people have, the, the person we mentioned, right, has schizophrenia and the cannabis and alcohol use disorder, right? It's not only, it was not only that was presenting to a mental health uh, center, let's say, and they didn't have the addiction treated, but often they wouldn't have their mental illness treated because of the awareness of the addiction. It's like, we can't treat you until you stop using you know, which put this uh, um, incredible burden on the patient as, as if the substance use disorder is a choice, right? And conversely, then they would send them to, uh, uh, you know, rehab or, you know, addiction uh, treatment place and say, well, we can't treat you because, you know, you have psychosis. Uh, we, we don't treat people with psychosis here, you know? Uh, so, um, so people were just falling through all the time. And then, um, you know, a couple of decades ago, um, there was this group of researchers at Dartmouth, actually, who came up with the idea that, no, I mean, we need to treat both, you know, it's just, just common sense, you know, we need to treat both. And they actually did, I think, an initial study in trying to see, okay, what about sequential or parallel treatment, you know, and that didn't work very well. Parallel, sequential treatment doesn't work. Parallel treatment, which means like two treatments, okay, concomitant, but with no, not much communication between the other, you know, between them doesn't work either. And then they started to look at, well, what about if we try to bring these teams together, you know, and we train maybe the team in a little bit of both. And, you know, what are the elements that we can integrate? You know, maybe we can integrate um, in the substance use treatment, you know, the, the, the different practices that were shown to work in the substance disorder, but, but we bring them in to people with, you know, who are also have a mental illness, like we AA, you know, peer support. And then we create also individual peer support for people maybe who have themselves psychosis and the substance use disorder, you know, and we create that kind of mentorship. Um, and, um, you know, all kind of CBT-based treatment for addiction. Um, at the same time, you know, we have one group on, of that, on that and another group therapy based on um 
illness management, you know, referring to the psychosis and or to the trauma or uh, to the depression, which is um, very commonly present as well. Um, and there has been actually, you know, there have been many studies since then in the last 20 years showing that integrated care really works. So at this time, it's considered an evidence-based practice. It's quoted by SAMHSA, you know, and a number of other organizations that, you know, integrated care is really the way to go. And that means concomitant and, um, you know, communicating, different specialties, communicating with one another. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have specialists at the highest level. But it does mean that your team of care manager, at the very least, has to have training in everything uh, a little bit. And, um, you know, and then support uh, a number of activities that, that and practices and treatments that, that are also evidence-based for both. Um, and again, in addition to employment and families and all that, which are very important in somebody with serious illness. Um, yeah, you asked me, so you asked me about the research. Yes, uh, so so this research, you know, there are elements of the research also that have been studied and are evidence, but, you know, the supported employment has been extensively researched. I mean, there are studies all over the world that have shown that, you know, they can, uh, that it works, you know, people do get competitive jobs even when they have serious mental illness and they're happier, you know, they're a lot happier. And they actually make more money than if they get on disability, you know. So in a way, getting on disability, I mean, can be very helpful, right? Of course, for the right person at the right time, um, especially, you know, since it provides insurance coverage and all that. But, um, you know, in a way, it also, you know, people may remain poor, you know, and, and getting competitive employment is a little way out of that. I, I think that's a great point. And basically, then you're saying the outcomes are pretty clear that integrated care is a way to go if we actually want to improve quality of life and overall functioning. And then the challenge should not the burden should not be on the patient, it should be on the providers to work together and meet the challenge of, of these more complex cases. Yeah, definitely. And I would go even further just to say the burden is on the system, you know, because the providers, I mean, sure, the I mean, it's easy to say, well, the providers need to do more, but I don't think, you know, that is the message. That's not doable. You know, the providers are really uh, under huge burdens of, of uh, time and complexity, you know, and so, so it's not that. It's really the system needs to work that way. I mean, whenever the providers can do that, that's great but it's the system that needs to change and that this is what I'm advocating for in the end. We need system change, you know, to, to, to produce that kind of care that is evidence-based, producing good outcomes, gives people good hope and good comprehensive recovery and is available. I think then that much more important for outpatient, you know, if you're at the outpatient level of care to keep in mind these additional resources that somebody would be offered at the appropriate residential level or at partial hospitalization or intensive outpatient. So if we're feeling challenged on the outpatient level, the importance of finding the appropriate uh, group then, the appropriate program that can handle all of the pieces that you were just talking about, because that's simply what best practice is if we're going to design care based on outcomes. You and I could obviously talk much more about this. Um, can you tell us, Dr. Delia, how people can get in touch with you and learn more about your work and also some other resources that you recommend for people who are listening and are saying, I want to learn more about this? Where, where do you send them online? What books do you recommend? So if anybody wants to get in touch with me, I'm be very happy to um, answer questions. Uh, I'm going to read my email address and, uh, you know, maybe it will be somewhere in the footnotes, but it's D-C-I-M-P-E-A-N-Hendrick um, at westbridge.org. And that's my first initial, middle name and last name. And um, I mentioned... Um, I, I have, you know, I have a number of references uh, that I can share the articles um, that are referring to the uh, Westbridge Recovery Index, the, the making of the tool um, that is easy to use uh, to, to measure recovery. I have another one 
about outcomes of a residential and community-based co-occurring disorder treatment program that is a private organization that delivers that kind of integrated care that I was just uh, describing uh, at Westbridge. And uh, there are very interesting outcomes. There's very interesting outcome data coming out of that. And a book that I mentioned in the text that is called um, Addressing Chronic Diseases, uh, Health Management Strategies for Use with Behavioral Health Clients. And the authors are Mary Brunette and uh, myself, Vidya Hendrick. I will make sure that we include the reference list on the course landing page for our Clearly Clinical members to be able to refer to that. So thank you, Dr. Delia. That's a very helpful resource to learn more and further expand our knowledge and our ability working with this high need and important population. Um, I know I've learned a lot during this hour. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your expertise and your knowledge about this with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Beth. It's been a pleasure. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.